Hey everybody, this is Nate Smoyer, and you're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. This is the show where we sit down with the leaders in real estate and technology to find out what they're doing to transform the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. If you've got an interest in real estate and technology, stick around. You're in the right place. All right, what an awesome episode. Uh, this We just got done recording, and we've got Torstein. He's co-founder, CEO of a marketplace called CrowdStreet. I'm just going to read you a little bit from their website. At CrowdStreet, we believe that that markets are stronger when they are accessible, transparent, and efficient. And everything that they're doing at CrowdStreet is literally working towards that mission. Uh, They're making deals that are institutional-like, available to investors across the country, So bring in sponsors and investors together on one platform and so that we can, you know, do better deals, get better returns and actually make uh, commercial real estate investing more accessible to those, especially if you're outside of a market and can't get any local deals done. You do got to be a credit investor. Also, I should probably put in the top of the show as a disclaimer, nothing you hear here is investment advice always consult someone who is a qualified individual. I am not that guy. And so with that, let's jump into the show. Well, hey, Tor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nate. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad that we got here. I know that we we had a little bit of scheduling back and forth and you're super flexible. So uh, I appreciate you working with my challenging schedule as it is can be sometimes. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks. Thankful for your time. Uh, I love to get this started right uh, and give you the opportunity to introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Sure. So uh, I'm Torstein. I'm the CEO and co-founder of CrowdStreet. Uh, I've been uh, at this for over five years uh, with my, my uh, co-founder, Darren Powderly. Um, and my background is really squarely in the online and software space. And since 1999, when I jumped into the kind of online internet space, um, really helping you know, at the time was B2C companies uh, evolve as well as B2B transformation in the software space. And so when Darren and I got together and he comes from the commercial real estate background and he kind of brought this great idea to me of how to democratize access to commercial real estate investing um, by bringing it online you know, he piqued my interest. And, um, and Darren had been a partner at a well-known commercial real estate firm. So he came with deep domain expertise. And I came with, I think, a very open mind to saying, you know, how do we make lives better, right, for consumers, as well as for businesses. And so that's, uh, that was kind of how Darren and I got together and how CrowdStreet was formed in, in 2013. And how we decided to bring this great asset class, commercial real estate, uh, to bring it out of the, I'd call it the dark ages a little bit, uh, and bring it into the modern ages and, um, and make it accessible, make something that is the third largest asset class in our country, but really a pretty inefficient uh, market for investing to bring it to millions, millions of investors out there. It must be tough riding the little bit of the wave of appreciation the last few years, huh? It's been a good time that we started CrowdStreet, let me tell you. Uh, a lot better than if, it, if we decided to start it in 2007 or 2008, right? You know, there was a, there's quite a few companies that came out of the downturn. Uh, I, I heard a fascinating uh, interview from Pete Flint. and talked about Trulia, and uh, they had raised all that money right before the downturn uh, and yeah. had to 
had to power through, but the downturns can sometimes offer a lot of opportunity for innovation. So good on you guys for doing that. And let's first give you a congratulations. Uh, you guys took home uh, a Rita. Shout out to Cretec. We were in New York and uh, for best in crowdfunding and capital sourcing. So that's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it was really, you know, those awards are, are kind of fun, right? It's, it's exciting. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it, it gives you a kind of a third party little pat on the back to say, hey, uh, you're, you're being recognized for all the hard work and, and what you've been able to do uh, in the early days of your company. Yeah. Now we're going to jump into, uh, I, w- I would love for you to explain the big idea, the big problem that CrowdStreet's uh, solving, but I'll start with a quote I-, I pulled from your site and then I'll let you jump into that. You said at CrowdStreet, we believe that markets are stronger when they're accessible, transparent, and efficient. So what does that mean and what's the big problem CrowdStreet is set out to solve? Yeah. Uh, so the, the big problem is, uh, and I'll start commercial real estate as an asset type is about $15 trillion of total value. And when you look at that on an annualized basis and you look at the amount of equity that goes through commercial real estate transactions every year, just the equity piece, not the debt piece, it's about $250 billion of equity that happens in that market. Now, in that $250 billion is a lot of institutional capital, endowments, pension funds, you know, institutional investors. And when you come over to the individual side, it tends to be very high net worth individuals that have kind of been able to participate because your average kind of developer or operator, we like to call them sponsors. You, when they go raise that private money, they're usually looking for really big check sizes from like their friends and family and high net worth investors. Well, that creates a, a significant problem in the market. Number one, it doesn't make it accessible to lots of other investors who might only have twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to invest. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's not a very transparent market, right? It's done offline. It's done in kind of one-to-one relationships. And it's really inefficient when it's done offline. So what we're trying to do is transform this ability to invest in commercial real estate by making it accessible, transparent, and efficient. And by, if we accomplish that vision, Nate, then hmm. what we will have done is unlocked and opened up the possibility for millions of investors who never participated directly into a commercial real estate opportunity to be able to start investing their capital and their, their portfolio in commercial real estate. Wow. Small vision. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, small market, small vision. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, so, okay. So the story is kind of like you've been in software and, and connected with finance and you've, you've got a little bit of a background there. Your partner's commercial, but really how does this come together? How do you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, yeah. I mean, a little bit of, you know, crazy uh, entrepreneurs uh, trying to, trying to solve big problems. I think, um, you know, how, how it comes together. And, and again, there were a couple of theses that, that when Darren and I came together, we said, you know, here's what we think. Number one, we think that quality is super important, right? So when you're going to say you're going to create a crowdfunding marketplace for commercial real estate, you can't look through the lens of it's a Craigslist, Right. I got concerned right away. I was like, shoot, this is going to be what leftover from LoopNet, and who knows what that'll be. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so it definitely cannot be that. Right. So you have to kind of set a quality marker. And in order to set the quality marker, you got to say, you know, what is your criteria on your marketplace? Right. It's kind of like 
eBay over the years, right? eBay kind of was trying to say they were doing a lot around security and privacy and fraud detention. You know, they were kind of taking out a lot of the, the angst that could happen there. We were kind of doing the same thing in the crowd in the marketplace around commercial real estate to say, you know what? Um, there's certain levels of experience, years of experience, assets under management, track record, things like that. That's going to qualify a sponsor to be on the CrowdStreet marketplace because investors have choice, right? Investors can put their capital to work in other places. And if they're coming into commercial real estate for the first time and dipping their toe into commercial real estate, I think they're going to want to put their capital work with the highest quality sponsors and projects possible, right? Mm -hmm. Now there might be some mission-based investments that an investor might have that's not ROI driven and that's fine. That's uh, you know, but they, they are looking through the lens of an ROI when they come to CrowdStreet. So that was definitely a, a big uh, consideration. This, the second consideration was technology, right? And that uh, approaching this from a lens of commercial real estate, but with a very much a technology bent was important because if you're bringing on hundreds, if not thousands and eventually millions of investors into this, it better be a fully automated, streamlined online workflow and process. And so that's from the very beginning, CrowdSheet's DNA had deep software engineering uh, technical talent uh, to build the platform that we have today because you can't solve the problem by just throwing more people at the problem. You've mm -hmm. got to leverage technology. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, and you're, not, you're no longer dealing in things where like everything remains static. You know, everything around real estate is dynamic. Exactly. And so if you want to take real estate to that next level, I mean, you, you just have to, you have to get it online. You've got to get it cloud-based. It's mm -hmm. got to be able to move with things because, I mean, not that I don't know how much interest rates, are, uh, you know, but interest rates, such a simple thing, but interest rates change. Mm -hmm. And if something on the deal changes, I mean, you, you need to reflect that. You can't just, okay, let's send certified letters out to 200 people, you know, <laughs> nobody has time for waiting for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So I, I also pulled another quote that I, I wanted to talk about this one. Um, it, it, it said, uh, CrowdSheet gives you the access to deal flow from sponsors outside your immediate network. No longer must you know, uh, no longer, it's not, not about who you know, shaking hands, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, because this is something, and, and I think this is important. Uh, other podcasts out there, uh, you know, the Bigger Pockets Network is probably the, the most common amongst DIY investors. But they say, get out there and invest or, or, or network. Go go hang out, go network, go to the local reen, go to the local, you know, meetup. And, and I've met some great people at those events, but very few had access to anything remotely institutional mm -hmm. uh, as far as a, a deal. And you get better rates of return, you get better security. So tell me, why, why did you focus on that obviously, other than the obvious reasons? And do people no longer have to go out and do the local networking if they're using Crowd, CrowdStreet? Yeah, it's a great question, Nate. And uh, so first off, when I look at the investors on the CrowdStreet marketplace, 70% of the investors that have been with us since the early days are very advanced real estate investors in their local market. So mm -hmm. they're individuals who've been kind of, you know, back to that kind of not accessible. They were individuals that had access. They knew developers in their local community that they'd invested with for years. And what they loved about CrowdStreet is they might have been long Portland multifamily projects 
And now we're giving them access to senior housing and storage and retail and office industrial with different developers across the country. It could be Dallas, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, all over the place. So they can actually pick and choose and they can get more diversified outside of their local region. So I, I don't want to say local is not a good thing if you've been lucky enough to meet the right developers and operators that feel in our institutional capital. But many times, investors, you're not invited to that party. Um, you're not out playing golf with the, those developers, right? You're not going to the steak dinner. Um, and so the beauty is now you can get it all at your fingertips. You can pick and choose depending on if you have a certain affinity to a certain asset type, certain geography, even a risk profile. Maybe you want core plus instead of value add or opportunistic, that you can actually kind of diversify and build an entire portfolio of commercial real estate that's not kind of identified with one geography. Because many times the traditional offline way is you've probably gotten over kind of exaggerated in your local community in terms of your real estate holdings. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. because it's all you had access to, right? So there was no reason you couldn't, but now you get developers across the country that you can put your capital to work with. So this has got to be, this is such good timing then because now you have, you know, the, the opportunity zones are uh, opened up. Mm -hmm. you know, people are pumping money in. What is it like a trillion dollars has been raised already? Um, yeah. It's opportunity zone fund. So what, what kind of activity have you seen there and, and what, you know, obviously now, so you've opened up access. I can now safely invest in Dallas from wherever I'm at, you know, okay. And, you know, you open this up and now with opportunity zone funds, what have you seen uh, in traction there? And what do you think is that's really gonna, what's gonna come of that? Because I hear a lot of chatter about it. I see a ton of questions, um, but you know, personally, and I think we have one project in town here where I'm at in Bellingham. It's, mm -hmm. it's been, you know, foundation walls for like the last 10 years and suddenly it's a giant apartment complex. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I don't know any other reason someone picked up that project. So, so what, I'm curious, what kind of activity have you seen and what do you think is going to happen as a result of the Opportunity Zone funds? Yeah, so we've already actually got two projects on our marketplace today that are Opportunity Zone qualified, qualified Opportunity Funds. Mm -hmm. um, and it's developers that we've actually had experience with beyond the Opportunity Zone. It just so happens that their latest project was in an Opportunity Zone. They did make it a QOF. Uh, qualified Opportunity Zone Fund. And, um, and so it's been well received by investors who now understand some of the tax uh, uh, benefits, obviously, to putting money into an Opportunity Zone Fund, right? Um, the, the capital gains kind of sheltering and things like that. I think it's, it's like something else, right? I mean, when, when the Opportunity Zone kind of came about with the tax reform bill, you know, not all the rules were written, right? And it's taken months. Uh, and there's still ambiguity in all of this. Still <laughs> I'm marks. still learning something new every week. Like, oh, I didn't know that before. Like, yeah. like th th there's a time event that happens in 2026, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, where the capital gains up to 2026, whether you built new, rehabbed, or even invested in a business in those zones, I believe, Mm -hmm. you have to pay the gains whether or not you sold. Yeah. But it's the, after that point is where the gains are now done. They're zero. They're not a thing anymore, right? Yeah. So there's just tons of these permutations to it that people are trying to figure out. And so 
Um, you know, again, this, some of our developers have, uh, have spent the time and resources from a legal and a tax perspective to really get that in, in steadfast. Because you want to make sure investors don't want to risk, uh, you know, tax impacts and things like sure. that with their money. Now, I know that you're not giving me investment advice here, but no. <laughs> none no, of this counts, counts as uh, investment advice. Please see your own lawyer and all those qualified people. Yeah. Um, what do you think this is, that, and just this is like a general question, not necessarily about CrowdStreet, but what do you think the result is going to be on the zones or the areas and neighborhoods just outside of the opportunity zones? Yeah. Um, I mean, is that in of itself like a sub opportunity zone that should, people should be looking at big projects? Maybe, although, you know, here in Portland, uh, I was kind of surprised when they came out with the map of the opportunity zone funds or opportunity zones. Cause I was like, what is it in an opportunity zone? Right. It was almost yeah. like, gosh, you know, the map around Portland was like so extensive in areas that I was like, really, I, that's an opportunity zone. So I don't know that there's going to be that much of a, Oh, you're outside the opportunity zone. Cause I think, the maps are so well drawn or are so expansive that there's so much actually included in those, those ozones. So you, you don't think there'll just be this big trickle of like those suckers, they wasted all their money on that thing. They could have just bought the discount properties on the other side of the border here. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll bring, we'll bring it back here. I digress. So I want to talk more about um, the people who use CrowdStreet. So they're investors. Um, they have to be accredited investors, right? Yes. Yeah. What, what are the criteria for that now? Has that changed or is that still? They're, they're debating changing the, you know, the litmus test, if you will, or the definition. Um, but, but for all intents and purposes, it's been the same for many years now, right? Which is uh, your net, it's several parameters. One, your either net worth is a million dollars, exclusive of your primary residence. Number two, or it could be $200,000 annual income as a single 300,000 house head of head of household. Um, or you have an asset uh, or a trust that's uh, $5 million of, of value or more. Uh, a financial advisor, you know, you have a certain uh, a certification kind of thing as a, a credit investor. So for all intents and purposes, when you, when you take that definition and you look across the U.S., it's somewhere between, uh, it's about 12 million uh, investors mm -hmm. across our country. Yeah, so you have like a pretty well-defined addressable market for you guys, fortunately. Yes. Whereas all the other uh, services and products out there that are catered to the DIY investors, that could be anybody. Anybody, yeah. 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 That's uh, that From a marketing perspective, that sounds wonderful and just glorious to say, well, we know exactly who our customer is. We do. Well, and you can imagine, though, that a credit investor type of uh, – investor is is hit with a lot of offers every day of uh, where to put their capital so yeah. sometimes we have to say okay you know how, how do we stand out so that's a perfect lead into why do people use crowdstreet versus other opportunities and platforms or just doing it themselves yeah i think one of the key reasons and i hear it from investors because i do ask them like when they become a, an active investor on crowdstreet so what what drew you to crowdstreet why was it uh, that, that you chose to put your, your invested dollars through our marketplace, as opposed to there's other marketplaces, there's going direct and things like that. There was a few things. Number one, they said the quality of the product that we put on the marketplace. That goes back to what I mentioned earlier, Nate, in terms of one of our key, key themes when we started. And so we have an investments team here that does all the screening and vetting of sponsors, their projects, what they're offering to investors and puts it through. It's about a 26 point 
process in terms of before they get to the end and then, and then are accepted for our marketplace. So oh, wow. investors are actually giving us feedback that they really like the quality of the sponsors and the projects that go on our marketplace. I think the second resounding thing they like is the diversity. So we're not a multifamily only platform. We actually think that, you know, people want choice. They might want multifamily is a very hot, you know, asset type. It's mm-hmm. what an investor can kind of relate to. Uh, the demographics of the millennials of staying, you know, more in, in apartments than home ownership. You know, there's some definitely some demographic things that are at play. But we offer retail and industrial and office and senior housing and storage and kind of a diversity of choice. That's the second thing that we hear from our investors. And the third that the investors have told us is they love that we give them three opportunities or three ways by which they can invest on our marketplace. They can Hmm. do it the direct method, meaning if they could put $25,000 into a senior housing ground up development project in the Midwest, right? If that's maybe they have a real strong affinity, but they could also take the 25,000, they could put it in what we, we call the CrowdStreet blended portfolio and our CrowdStreet blended portfolio will actually invest those dollars over a 12 month period into 30 to 40 different projects so that that investor could have diverse, you know, diversification without doing it themselves. I call it the easy button, right? They can, they can put it into the blended portfolio and let us algorithmically allocate it into deals across a, a 12 month. Uh-huh. And then our third choice for investors is we, those that want really a high touch you know, kind of advisory service. We have a registered investment advisor group called CrowdStreet Advisors, and we can actually create a custom portfolio and we can actually help enact the trading on behalf of the investors. So it's kind of, those are the three things that we've heard. You know, the third being the ability for multiple ways to invest. So, you know, people can come to you, they like the platform, they like who it connects it to, and they're not faced with the choice of, do you want low risk or high risk, low, you know, safe returns, you know, but or high, potentially higher returns. I mean, they get they get to really find what what's going to help them achieve whatever their goal is. Uh, and then obviously, you know, they're 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 more of a passive investor in that mm-hmm. they want their money to work for them. They're not trying to advertise for tenants. They're not trying to you know keep up on maintenance contracts and things like that. Yeah, that that last point, Nate's exactly right because it goes back to, gosh, you know direct investing in real estate, you either were invited to put big denominations into commercial, or if you didn't have those big denominations, maybe you started buying rental incomes and then you were an active manager of real estate, right? Then you're the, oh boy, I get the call at midnight that the plumbing's got a problem. Uh, It hasn't happened to me, but don't wish that on me. (laughs) I, I did get one time, one time my tenant sent me an email, hey Nate, the water heater is like, pouring water out the bottom and that's when i called them was like you guys like you can call me a minute that happens oh by the way turn off the water you know (laughs) here's a hint turn off that valve yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, thank you so much turn the damn water off but it's all good but uh no i i I totally understand what you're saying i mean it it just it makes it, it makes sense um there's especially just even in screening tenants and it gets it's more intense in commercial because you have a smaller pool of everything Everything is a smaller amount of people. So you guys have created the platform that even, you know, you're almost like making the pool bigger. It's like yeah. almost making the crowd bigger, so to speak, because you're, you've got a place where everyone to come together. Mm-hmm. And so 
if you don't have a, a, a if you don't play golf or you don't have an invitation to you know some gala down the road where all the high end people go you can get one online you know so to speak and and do like that so you, you mentioned 25,000 a few times mm-hmm. though is that the minimum investment it normally is it, okay. it normally is the opening and and you know back to when we started Crouch Street, really 2014 to 16 was heavy lifting of convincing these sponsors who their traditional way was, again, through their high net worth investors. Mm-hmm. Their usual minimums have been $250,000. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, their lowering of a minimum was $100,000. And they said, oh, I only did that on an exception basis. So you can imagine, Nate, trying to get those sponsors to come all the way down to 25000 I had to really prove out to them, hey, by the way, putting it online, it's going to be a lot more efficient. Because the reason they would take 250 is like, hey, I want less investors, higher denominations. And now we're saying lower denominations, more investors. You don't because, do that without technology and automation. Right. Can, oh, okay. I see. I'm not taking calls and I'm not having to go have an investor walk the property because these investors are all over the country. So that's why, again, 25 was a nice low minimum that, that was still amenable with those types of institutional quality yeah. sponsors. Yeah, so the minute you become a accredited investor, just go sell your used Mercedes, bam, there's your, there you go, jump exactly. in. Yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> appreciating asset, not depreciating. Right, 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 yeah. Can you 1031 into um, an investment on CrowdStreet? Great question. We actually have had 1031 eligible deals. Uh, but as you know, with 1031s, it's a lot of time is it's timing, right? And it's also kind of like assets or, or other criteria by which what you could 1031 into. So sure. we have had 1031 eligible. We'll actually flag those as 1031 eligible um, so that investors that happen to be rolling something that they can see it, they can, they can go right into it. Got it. And do you have your own intermediaries or you work with other firms? Uh, other firms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, cause I, I know that that's been a thing that's kind of caught on recently, or at least I know that a lot of services have popped up to help people with that challenge of when you sell, you've, you've got two choices, pay the man or park it somewhere. And that, you know, I had a good friend of mine, I, he was trying to find a deal and, and he was like up to the, like the last day before he went under contract on something and I remember talking to him like two weeks prior and he was just like the stress, yeah. the level of, st- I mean, cause you don't have the upper hand in negotiating if the no. seller knows you're trying to 1031, yeah. you know, you've got to find a deal. So mentally you're out of the loop. So that's, uh, that's uh, obviously, and then with investors, they're more savvy. So this is going to be something they're looking to, how do I minimize anything that's cutting into my margin, yep. you know, uh, from me to get my money to work for itself. I am curious, what's the, what's the average deal size that you see on CrowdStreet? Yeah, so the average project size. Yep. Okay, so the average project size is about $30 million project. Um, and then the average kind of uh, leverage on those deals is right around 66%. Uh, the, remain, the remaining, you know, 34% is the equity portion. Yep. And a portion of that equity is sponsors. So sponsors have to have their own skin in the game. We don't, we don't deal with sweat equity. We deal with real equity. So there, there's no, there's no, uh, none of these deals are no money, low money down deals. No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no. The sponsors have to have it at minimum 5%. We, we actually prefer 10% of their own equity of their own, uh, equity in the, into the deal. And okay. then, 
you know, the other equity portion is, again, them bringing their own investors, right? So one of the criteria that Crosstree has is, have you worked with investors before? How many investors do you have? How much assets under management do you have? And then there's our, our portion of equity. So investors coming to Crowdstreet can kind of think like, hey, I'm actually able to invest right alongside the, the, that country club money and I'm being invited to this party. Yeah, except for 300 million or 30 million is kind of uh, bigger than the usual check size or for an investor, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's bigger than any bigger than checks than I know people hang out at the country club. Then again, I, I can't swing a golf club, so... <laughs> I can't either. So my, my, my father-in-law is a VP of commercial lending at a, at a bank up here in the Northwest. Uh, and uh, I've, I made it well known from the start. I was like, man, I want to be a part of his family, but I ain't golfing. It's just not going to happen. That's, that's his thing, man. So, you know, it's all good though. He might be listening to this. Shout out, Bob. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm curious though. So, um, you know, as a marketer, when I'm looking at different companies, I like to see what they're doing that's helping them grow. So, I mean, fortunately, you know, you guys, great timing on your, on your part. You know, you, you, you came into the market where it was at a nice lull. There was probably a minimum activity and you're able to ride a wave up along with building a, a cool platform. Uh, but along the way, probably something you've tried hasn't worked or mm -hmm. you had to change up directions. I'm curious, can you share any stories about, Maybe uh, a project you started with CrowdStreet or an experiment that didn't go right. Yeah, I'd say it's an experiment that didn't go right. And it was really because it wasn't the right timing. Not that it was a bad idea. Uh, and, and it was to basically open up the channel. And by channel, what I mean is, you know, all the investors that have come to CrowdStreet, it's been a direct, uh, their, their advisor is not, you know, helping them come to CrowdStreet. They're kind of going outside of their traditional financial advisor and doing this on their own. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, we started kind of going to a couple of conferences. We started kind of building an outreach to the registered investment advisors and the wealth managers. And I wouldn't, you know, it, did, it, it failed in that, you know, the timing wasn't right. I think our mm -hmm. products weren't there yet. We weren't offering the blended portfolio. We weren't offering private managed accounts. And I think the, the market had to evolve a little bit. But yep. now as we talk to the registered investment advisors and the wealth managers, and we explain how they could actually help their clients get exposure to commercial real estate through this method, they're a lot more receptive to it. Um, because when you think about it, when you think of the trillions of invested dollars that people across our country have, right? A lot of that is controlled by their advisor, or at least their advisor is that fiduciary that's kind of by telling them where to put their capital. You know, and so I, I want to, I have to ask you this question. I didn't want to ask you, but I have to ask, and it's kind of leading to it. Sure. Do, do, do you see commercial real estate as a safer investment than the stock market? We've had a lot of investors tell us that they, they truly believe it is, especially after Q4 of uh, 2018 and, and the, the volatility that happened in the marketplace. Um, I think that's why when you, again, one way to look at it is to say, you know, how have the endowments, how is Harvard or Yale just using two of the largest endowments in our country, right. how have they invested their dollars? And when you look at it, I think it's between 20 and 30% is in real estate. So wow. they're pretty smart investors at those endowments. And yeah. if they're putting that much, then there's something to it to say, look, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. 
but to, to have 90% or more in stock market is probably not the best way to go about doing it. Right. And, and most advisors do say, Hey, you should have 20% in alternatives and commercial real estate is the largest alternative. Yeah. And you know, the thing I've always appreciated about real estate and real estate investing as opposed to stocks and, you know, I'm not here to bash stocks, but I'm just, you know, I'm going to share my opinion on it a little bit is, you know, I can't control the value of my stock in a company when the CEO goes on a podcast and smokes weed, right? I can't control the value of a stock I hold in a company because a third party data provider, you know, several years ago violated the terms of service and now suddenly Congress is holding that company responsible and they're now like, like near their 52 week low. I mean, suddenly out of nowhere, like I can't put new windows in, I can't put a new roof on that. I can't get the benefit of you know, the whole foods opening up down the block. It doesn't matter. And I lose the value in that. And that's what I've always appreciated out of real estate is even if it's passive somewhere, someone's got enough skin in the game where, Hey, we need to turn the ship around. There's still value in this building. It's, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're over leveraged and doing things, in a totally irresponsible way, which sounds like you guys have some checks and balances in there, then it's it, long-term, it's a, it's a safe and viable route. Yeah. No, you're, you're spot on, Nate. You're spot on. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I got, a, I, got, oh, I got a few things you got to cover before we hit uh, into our uh, uh, bottom of the show segments here. We've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, all the, the, the way deals work, people are using the platform. Um, but, a lot of marketplaces have, there's a lot of different models as to how people monetize this type of service. Obviously, you're not just doing this out of the goodness of your heart. There's a business behind this. Mm -hmm. How does CrowdStreet make money? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple ways. One is that I talked about the different ways that investors can invest in, into the marketplace. If they want to invest directly, the sell, I'll call it the self-serve way where they, they pick and choose. Uh, we don't charge investors any fees to do that. We look at it as like, look, part of our mission and vision is to open up access. And if we, you know, like, again, put up more commissions and things like that, you're not giving investors access. And, and so we don't charge them anything. For our blended portfolio, where we actually have hard costs, we've got team doing it, we just charge 1% to the investor to be able to manage all that for them. And then our private managed account has kind of that similar kind of uh, percentage rate, if you will, of the, of the management of those funds. Really, uh, the key uh, revenue driver is we charge sponsors, the developers and operators, right? They're used to saying, okay, how do, what do I have to charge? What do I pay for CrowdStreet to do all these things for me? So it's kind of like a software as a service technology fee that we charge them because when you think about it, the sponsors are using our technology to automate yep. the entire workflow. They're using our marketing. We, I have an awesome marketing team that knows tons about digital marketing. They've gone out and they've said to the sponsors, we'll go find accredited investors across the U.S. We'll bring them to CrowdStreet and then, you, you know, we'll help, you know, get your offering up onto the marketplace, right? So we have a production team and everything else that goes into that. So we're also providing services. So I look at it, technology marketing and services fee for the sponsors is a little bit, you know, is not a lot to ask uh, for what we're doing for them. And so they, yeah. they're receptive to it and they love it because they're like, wow, that's not something they would do on their own. They usually don't have the technology chops, nor the marketing, nor a services team to be able to do all this. So we're bundling that all up for a fee structure from them. 
the third, the third way, and besides those two ways, is we actually do license our technology. So we had sponsors that were coming back using our marketplace that said, wow, CrowdStreet, you guys have automated and, and built a CRM platform for managing investors. Can I license your technology? Because I'd like to use it on my own website with my own investors. Because again, they usually have a stable of investors. Interesting, yeah. They've been managing on spreadsheets, that they've been managing in point solutions. And so we actually have 150 sponsors that, white, that use our white label software. Wow. So you have a handful of levels. And I can speak to your marketers. I mean, I did get the retargeting ads. <laughs> I tried to trigger those going to different pages. I'm nosy. I, I went and, I, you know, I try to poke around, see what the tags and conversions you guys are using so I can try and figure out your marketing funnel. Um, you can only figure out so much, but... But uh, yeah, I, I love the different options there, but it sounds like, I mean, really for everyone else on that, you know, for the investors, it's minimum, you know, that really so that they can put as much money into the deal as possible. The, the platform, you know, the customer really is the sponsor. Yep. So the you know, sponsor gets the automated marketing and I'm, I'm assuming there's reporting and keeping yep. track and making sure everyone's up to date. So anything that the sp investors need, that's what CrowdStreet is providing is all that information and updates. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They have a dashboard, yep. uh, got, you know, e email functionality built into it, uh, triggered emails, all that stuff uh, to say, hey, how can you manage hundreds of investors? You can't do that without technology. How many investors have used uh, CrowdStreet to participate in a deal? Uh, we have uh, thousands of investors. Uh, so we've got uh, 30,000 that are registered accredited investors today. Uh, about 15% of those are active, meaning they've invested at least once. Um, however, our average number of investments per investor is five. And, oh, wow. Yeah, average so investor. active. Yep. So, so not only do they come and put one investment in, but the average investor puts five. Um, we've got many that have 20, 30 investments, right, out on one side of the spectrum. And then some that are just one and, hey, that's all I wanted to put in. Uh, which is fine as well. But uh, average investor has five investments. Average investment size is right around $48,000 per investment. So while 25,000 is the minimum, many investors will put 50, 75, or 100 in certain deals. That's so cool. So what, the, what you could buy a uh, little two bedroom rancher out in the middle of Kansas, you get to have a share of an apartment building in New York City. Exactly, yep. I dig it, I, I do like it. Let's keep talking money. So I know you guys have gone through some fundraising. You've done your own fundraising, right? Yep. And, and real estate tech, you know, we got a chance to meet up at the Cree Tech in New York. It was all the VCs. So that was, everyone was talking about, hey, how do we get your checkbook? You know, how do we get you to write those checks? Yep. Ethical billion dollar checks. And um, real estate, I, I think I've just seen Cree Tech publish. It was like $9.6 billion dollars in Cretech last year, funding. Mm -hmm. Just so, just Cretech alone, because I don't think they're covering all the residential stuff. Mm -hmm. So that leaves out like the 400 million open door and you know everything else. Why do you think now, because I mean, you, you, you jumped into this in 2012, but why do you think now the money is flowing? I think it's a couple things, Nate. Um, number one, I think the regulatory environment changed. So I didn't, I kind of glossed out, didn't go through this, but you know, we wouldn't be able to put deals on the marketplace and generally advertise if it wasn't for the Jobs Act that came out in 2012, right? So in 2012, 
Congress and the president at the time, uh, unbelievably, they actually came together um, and actually did something together. That's crazy. Uh, I know it was, it was, it was like, but it was like coming out of the great recession, maybe they figured, Hey, we, we got to figure some things out here to, to solve like our financial securities. Um, we got to do something guys. Exactly. That's and, because uh, their pension funds took a hit. <laughs> Yeah, so it was like, okay, we have to figure this out now. And so the Jobs Act and Title II of the Jobs Act in September 13 said you could generally advertise to accredited investors. And so by generally advertise, you can use the internet. So I think number one, what's happened is some of those regulatory old financial securities laws were finally modernized so that you, in crowdfunding as a discipline became you know more accepted, right? And so that's one thing that, that have, has opened up. Um, I think the second is, again, I think uh, commercial real estate as an industry, especially from somebody that came into this a few years ago, was literally 20 years behind in their adoption of the internet and adoption of technology. Some of it was because of the regulatory thing. Some is just that they were laggards and they didn't see the need to. And I think they're one of the industries that's finally catching up. And with that industry finally catching up, and maybe it's a little bit of the changing of the guard, if, if you will, at some of these commercial real estate firms where maybe a different generation's coming in and saying, hey, we need to start getting with technology to compete better, to be more efficient, to innovate. And so I think with that, then the VCs go, okay, the time has come. And then you do have players like a LoopNet and a CoStar who kind of blaze some of the trail, yep. right? And, and others that have followed from there. So I think it's, it's now happening. You know, speaking on the innovation, and this is my, you know, amateurish take on some of that, but like with, when you think about it, like in the last 20 years, you know, you had even, I mean, really the last, yeah, even the last 20 years, like 20 years ago was like the height of the malls. Okay. Mm -hmm. The malls killed all the downtowns, right? Yep. All the downtowns died. So suddenly, right. And then the internet killed the malls <laughs> and manufacturing has been dead. So well, now we got, we got, we're sitting on a surplus of warehouses. We're sitting on a surplus of, you know, 30% vacancy malls. We have dead downtowns, but then we started seeing revitalization in multiple ways. You saw a lot of creativity, the revitalization of artisan markets. People thought all bookstores would die, and now it's the private bookstores that are thriving because mm -hmm. not everyone gave up paper. I'm one of those guys. There's actually a fantastic bookstore, like, in the middle of nowhere in Montana, that's like this old house that I, that every time I drive through Montana the last five times, a long story, uh, you know, I've stopped there. But the point being is like that this forces innovation. Like you have to rethink space. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't just build everything brand new anymore. Like the, it just, it doesn't physically, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work out to get the returns. So there's a ton of, how do we rework this? How do we make the deal flow better? How do we get rid of the friction in getting the deals or financing the deals. And so I think this is great because this is kind of going back to your mission of, mm -hmm. you know, making it transparent and accessible and efficient. I love that. I think that's awesome. Well, and even just think of like the office space and how the transformation of offices have happened. Right. And with tech companies and creative spaces and how, how commercial real estate firms are having to rethink all of that and what they're going to have to build into their spaces. The largest landlord, in New York City, or or or, or, or uh, leaser in, in in New York City, we work. Well, yep. What did they What did they have under lease ten years ago? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, nobody so, would. I mean, that is that's unfathomable. If you would have said ten years ago, there's going to be this company, 
that doesn't own any of the real estate and is going to rent more square foot. And they don't even have, like their company is just the, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yep. Nobody would have predicted that. Nobody. So I, I, I think it's an exciting time. Uh, I, I'm pumped on it, at least, if you can't tell. Uh, and I think what you guys are doing is obviously meeting a need. Uh, and, w- and one day when I get that certification in, in the mail, it says I'm, I'm smart to invest. I'll give you a call. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to move on. I'm going to move on to my favorite segment of the show. This is a game I like to call For the Future. For the Future is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions on the following four questions. Tor, are you ready to play? Let's go. All right. Question number one, this one's easy. What does CrowdStreet look like one year from now? One year from now. Wow. Okay. One year from now, uh, back to what I mentioned before, we're going to have a lot more of the registered investment advisors, wealth managers who've now woken up and recognize that their, their responsibility to their investors is to find things like CrowdStreet and start investing. So we're going to have a new channel uh, that's going to have evolved and, and new investors that are coming in. We're going to have uh, a lot more investors now using our blended portfolio to get that diversification across uh, our marketplace. So those are kind of two big things that, that you know, as I look into the crystal ball a year out, uh, that'll be different than it is today. All right. Question number two. I know this is a little bit outside of what we're talking about, but it affects everybody. What's the housing market look like one year from now? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know I, it's a curveball, but everybody has to answer this question because I'm selfish and I want everyone's crystal ball. Yeah. And you're saying nationally, not down to certain geos, but uh, so I think the housing market will be a little uh, more sluggish than it is today. Yeah. Question number three. When will the next big boom or bust happen in real estate? Uh, I don't think it'll be a bust. I think it'll be a dip. Uh, and I think the dip will be in, in 2020. I think we're going to see some softening that year. Uh, I don't think it'll be a bust. During an election year. Yeah, I think, I think that uh, just, you know, let's see how, how we exit this year. And, People will be a little afraid to get too bullish on election year, not knowing the outcome. If there's a lot of wild stuff happening there in DC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, no doubt about that. All right, we're blazing through these. This is crazy. This is not supposed to be a lightning round. All right, question number four. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of technological advances? Yeah, I think one of the things that will, uh, is you said either fade away or grow. Dramatically change or fade away. Yeah, I think the dramatically change, I think, um, and this is way out there, Nate. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I look through the lens of like financial products and investment products, right, as we've talked about here today. When you think of stocks and bonds, right, and you think back to the early 90s, Charles Schwab, Schwab transformed that, that industry, huge industry, right? Right. And, and had been stuck in kind of the offline, got to call your broker, you got to spend exorbitant fees. And so you look at what happened in the early 90s with Schwab being that innovator and fast forward to where today, like people are like, well, uh, obviously I do it online. Obviously I don't have to go into an office and place my trade. Right. And, and I apply that and say, wouldn't it be cool if in the future for commercial real estate, Instead of it being a private equity investment, which it is today, where it's a it's pretty much an illiquid investment, right? You're investing into that 
It's, yep. it's paying distributions and you get a capital gain and all that. And that's all good. Uh, what if it was a securitized uh, investment? What if it was using blockchain as a technology underpinning to make it a, a liquid investment, which could be bought and sold in between those events happening with the, the real, the hard asset itself. I know that's kind of out there. It's but- not too far out there because there's been compound New York. You got, uh, uh, Zhoss is trying this in California. You got uh, what was the one that did the apartment building recently? Um, it's like the only one that everyone knows that I can't think of right now. But but fractional ownership, leveraging blockchain for this purpose, it, it you know it's got a high amount of interest. I think there's some complexities there. One yeah. is the market ready, and I think that's the big question that most people are saying no. It the market's not ready. And, but I, I, I'm right there with you. I think at some point that's going to happen. Uh, 2020 ain't going to be the year though. No, put it it, it this way. I I talk to investors. I do ask them just the ones that I know really well that have put significant capital onto our marketplace. I say, if we were to offer you an opportunity to use cryptocurrency instead of cash to invest in that deal, they're like, you got to be kidding me. Like, Many of them are like, number one, I'm not doing a lot of crypto. I have hard cash and that's what yep. I'm like. So I think there will be, again, things take time as an entrepreneur and not my first time at the rodeo here. It always takes twice as long as you think it's going to take. So. Yeah. You know, I, I nearly gave my wife a heart attack one day because I just randomly said to her, hey, babe, I got this idea. I'm going to sell the house for uh, Bitcoin. And this is like when Bitcoin was like just hitting $15 or or. or was it 15,000? I don't know. I don't really follow it, but, but it was like on its way up. It wasn't at the peak yet. And she was like, what, why would you do that? I was like, well, the press, think about the, the publicity stunt. This could, it could, who knows what, and I was like, that's too much of risk. I'm not going to yeah. do that. But I thought about it. I really did. But someone had already done it and it didn't actually have a whole lot of press. I was yeah. like, well, there's a bust. Forget that. Anyway, <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to the last three here. Uh, Tori, these questions actually more about you uh, so our uh, listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Uh, question number one, what are you reading? What am I reading? Okay. Uh, so I am reading that book uh, that's about OKRs, uh, Objectives and Key Results. Um, the, the name's escaping me, but it's the one uh, by the um, – the one your investors gave you? The, the VC, probably, yeah. Uh, but it's a great book. It talks about how uh, the Intel uh, way of kind of how they built kind of Intel and then how Google adopted that OKR methodology, right, as Google was starting to, to grow. And I, the reason I'm reading it is as CrowdStreet's starting to grow and grow up as a company, trying to apply some of that methodology so we can, can you know, again, be better at what we do and be more it's not measure what matters, is it? That's the one. Yep. It was escaping me. That's the one. That's the one. You gave enough of a description for me to do a Google search and find it. Cool. Okay. (laughs) I've not read it, but it's going on the list. It's a good book. Yeah. Question number two, who are you learning from? Who am I learning from? I'd say uh, I am learning a ton from our investors. And every time I travel uh, and I'm on the road, I'm asking our investor client services team, I said, can you line up at least two or three meetings with our investors? Because I want to hear from them again. I always start the conversation with them of like, tell me before CrowdStreet, were, were, were you investing in real estate? 
if you weren't, why not? And many times they weren't because they said, I didn't have access to a tour. And mm -hmm. so I'm constantly, again, as a startup, as an entrepreneur, you, you listen and you learn and you, you pick up things every time. And so that can make our product offering better, our services better. I'm always asking them about how can we improve, right? What can we do differently, right? We've got an entire portfolio page now that many of the features were constructed by feedback from our investors of what they would like to see on their portfolio page, right? So, so that's, that's, that's who I learned from the most. I mean, my, my board likes to say I learned from my, my VCs, but you know, and I do, they're great. They're great. Uh, they're great board members and great VCs. Again, we'll always watch out who you, you know, be careful who you pick as your partners in this journey. Mm. And, uh, and I've chosen very wisely. I have great, great investors in CrowdStreet that, that I do learn from, but it's our investors. Yeah. Awesome. And the last one here, uh, what inspires you or what helps keep you inspired? I'd say my wife, you know, she, uh, she has been, uh, we've been together 20 years. Uh, we met at grad school and, um, I think the world of her and, and every night I come home, uh, she and my wonderful two boys, uh, you know, that family is, uh, is what inspires me. They mm. just, uh, she, she knows how much I love CrowdStreet and what I've been doing here for the last five years. And, um, she, you know, not every day is going to be, uh, going to be glorious. Right. Uh, and so you need somebody there that kind of help you when you got some tough times that knows you better at, than, um, than anybody else. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the road as an entrepreneur is nice and straight. It's flat, you know, it's just, no red lights, no accidents, right? It's just easy going. Easy, smooth sailing. That's why everybody wants to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Tori, this has been awesome. Uh, I'm, I've, I love the uh, love that we finally got a chance to connect and, and uh, do the show here. And I'm pumped because like I, I told you before the show, we, we don't get, uh, we haven't been able to feature too many products and services in the commercial but also in the investment side, I think that there's a ton of value out of this and it'll help, you know, I think hopefully help people reevaluate whether or not their personal home is their best asset or truly an investment, which that's a whole other show. Eventually one of the days we're going to really dig into that. Um, but anyway, I'm going to leave you uh, with the last word. I want people to know how can they connect with you and uh, find out more about CrowdStreet. Where do they go? How do they do that? Yeah. Uh, visit CrowdStreet.com is the best place. They can always, uh, they can find me there too at tour at CrowdStreet.com. Um, again, I love feedback. So if they come and they're like, Tor, uh, you're missing this part or you got to help educate a little bit more in this area. Get always, uh, as your listeners uh, explore CrowdStreet, feel free to always reach out to me at tour at CrowdStreet.com. All right. So I'm going to throw in my suggestion feedback here. Uh, I say we start sidestreet.com and we uh, somehow make a way for all those uh, Reg A funds. So, so tech nest listeners or podcast hosts <laughs> can participate in those funds. I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe someone already has side street, but. Yeah, I think it's going to, I think again, I think the, the, the opening up to non-accredited and the ability to do that is going to become easier. Some of the regulatory things have to change there, Nate, yeah. uh, to make it easier for sponsors to say, how do I, how do I even cast the wider net? Um, but I, I didn't touch upon that earlier. I think that is going to happen. So There it is. Bonus prediction coming from tour. Yeah. 
There we go. Um, <laughs> well, hey, I really appreciate your time. Uh, let's keep in touch. I'll see you at the next Cretech that you're at if you're going to be in L.A. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll have you back on sometime in the future when uh, you guys are killing it, knocking out the park. Sounds good. Thanks, Nate, for having right. me. You bet. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Nest podcast. Hey, don't forget, you can get on the email list. You never miss an upcoming episode. That's technest.io. That's T-E-C-H-N-E-S-T dot I-O. Get on the email list. Uh, go to the App Store, whether you found us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you found us. Leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And if you've got a guest or someone that you'd like to recommend, or if you think that you'd be a great guest on the show, hey, send me an email, nate at realteampanda.com. That's nate at realteampanda.com. See you guys later.